Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. We're piecing it all together. This is episode 14, and today we're focusing on the peace, peacemaking. Yeah, peacemaking is uh, part of why we started this thing. Yeah, it's right there in the title. It's, <laughs> it's our first name. And we're trying to make it a verb, too. Yeah. Uh, peacemaking, Randy, is more than being a pacifist. Yeah. It's not being passive. And it's not just placating the powers. That's right. It's an active engagement. So today we want to talk about some ways in which um, we need to think about piecing. Sounds great. So we're piecing it all together, P-E-A-C-I-N-G. And we appreciate your support. We appreciate your sharing uh, the things that you hear with others. And spread the word around, would you? Also give us a review on Stitcher and uh, iTunes. That would help us out a lot. Yeah. So I wanted to start today with two kind of famous quotes that get thrown around a lot. Um, And then uh, I know that you wanted to talk about um, some stories and some perspectives that may not be as famous, but probably lend a lot more to our current situation. Right. So I think there's going to be a lot of shows where we talk about different aspects of peace. So perhaps uh, today we might focus on um, indigenous American peacemaking efforts. Something like that. Maybe, That'd be great. Um, a little bit about uh, who we are as a nation and and uh, what I think Native Americans have to offer to the conversation. All right. Yeah. Uh, you, when you brought this topic up, I immediately said, sounds fascinating. It's, it's part of our identity and our focus of the show, and we haven't uh, gotten to it yet. And we're 14 episodes in, so I think it's about time we, we round the corner to this. Yeah, and who knows... In America, war is just around the corner. It doesn't matter when you live, what what decade you live in. With America, war is just around the corner. Aren't we into wars? We are. Yeah. It seems like perpetual wars now. Yeah. Well, America has a history of perpetual war. So um, we we are in, still in the Afghanistan war and still in the uh, invasion of Iraq. Yeah. I heard a weird stat last night. I was at a, a pub night thing. Somebody threw out a stat that... Um, those who are being, um, who are going into the military now, um, are going over to fight in a war that started before they were born. Wow. Something weird like that. And you just think, so their entire lifetime, I mean, it's it's weird to think about. Well, go ahead and give your quotes. Yeah. And I just want to kind of mention some of the wars that we've been in. Okay. Well, the, the quote I hear the most about peace uh, that from people who are who are pro peace uh, is the Einstein quote peace is not merely the absence of war but the presence of justice of law of order which I think is good unfortunately it's not the end of the quote the part that gets left off is he says in short of government so that's so read the whole thing again okay peace is not merely the absence of war but the presence of justice, of law, of order. In, in short, of government. Yeah. So if you leave off that of government, that's a pretty cool quote. The fact that um, in Einstein's time, uh, that he thought of that as government, and now it might be government that we have to be working for peace against, right. is eye-opening. No justice, no peace. But I, people, quotes are amazing things. And we, we, this is going to be a constant theme is people love to shorten quotes 
And let's just be honest, this quote is way better shortened. So if you just said, peace is not merely the absence of war, that's a good quote. Mm -hmm. And if you continue and say, peace is not the absence of war, but the presence of justice, that's a pretty good quote, too. Yeah. The whole quote's a little less effective. But All right, so that's the first one. The second one is uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian. He quoted this... um, chieftain, this warlord, uh, Scottish in the first century, Calgacus, who is famous for saying, uh, they make a desert and call it peace. Hmm. Uh, talking about the Roman empire. And so the, the full quote is they plunder, they slaughter and they steal this. They falsely name empire and where they make a desert, they call it peace. Wow. I'd like to know that guy. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, uh, I wish I had a Scottish accent and I read it. It would sound even more authoritative and authentic, but uh, the quote itself is pretty good. So those are the two quotes that I hear the most about peace. Peace is not just the absence of war and empire makes a desert and then calls it peace. Those are the two things I hear paraphrased the most. So apropos for the United States and what we have been going through. Uh, By the way, uh, I I think... uh, we should mention, and maybe this is a show to mention it, um, uh, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo of New York had a uh, famous quote the other day. Uh, he had, uh, uh, in a tweet, he oh, said... Oh, no, I heard of this. Yeah, when was America great? <laughs> and so it's like the idea of making America great again. And so basically what he was representing were all the people that America has not been great for. Oh. And, uh, um, you know, uh, Native Americans, African Americans... Chinese laborers, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, women, uh, the cult of domesticity. There's been lots of people who didn't fit the profile of a, a white landowning male that America was just not too great for, you know. And um, I thought the the interesting part and the, way, the whole reason I bring this up is because the press went crazy. Oh man, they went crazy. They yeah. just said, you know, he could have said something different. He could, and it's like, you know, all these, uh, uh, you know, I turn on MSNBC, and you got five white people, four white men and one white woman saying he should have said something different. You know, it's like, you know, of course they're going to say that because hey, it's been great for them. They've, you know, they've gotten to where they are. But you know, there's a lot of people just hasn't been so great for and. Um, and part of the reason of that is because of all the wars that we've gotten into and what we've, uh, who we've had to exploit in order to maintain that. You know, I, I didn't know you were going to bring up that quote. It, no, that's a surprise. It, it really, that day, man, it dominated the, the news cycle. And it was amazing that there were really, in, in, in our culture, everything gets this, this um, bifurcated one or the other response. It's either or response. But the reality is you cannot mess with the American myth of innocence and exceptionalism. Like, as a politician, like, that's just a recipe for not getting elected. Right. That's the first thing. But the second thing is it's funny that it actually has a name for those um, who want to not concede that position. They say, oh, you're part of the blame America first crowd. Mm. And you're like, why? I can't believe there's a moniker for that. But we live in such a divided, polarized time that for those who want to defend the, this myth of American purity and exceptionalism, like the blame America first. So we're not interested in blaming anybody, but 
we have to get to the root of the issue if we're going to make peace. Oh, I, I'm interested in blaming. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to, to, to blame all kinds of things. I can, I, I, I can blame the doctrine of discovery and the Catholic Church <laughs> and then the Protestants who went along with it. I can blame all of the, uh, not only government, uh, like Andrew Jackson and many of the others, but the settlers as well, who participated in Manifest Destiny and the ethnic cleansing of America. Uh, there's lots of people to blame. That was my fault. I should not have spoken in the royal we. Uh, I, I should not have spoken. Uh, that was presumptuous of me, and I apologize. I will not do that anymore. <laughs> I was trying to be um, inclusive and ironic, but that did not work. That backfired. So think about this. So you, you mentioned that we're at war you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq still. Um, there was the Libyan conflict in 2011. Bosnia and Herzegovina and, uh, and the Persian Gulf War before that in the 1980s, the invasion of Grenada and Panama. In the 60s and 70s was the Bay of Pigs invasion. And, of course, Vietnam, the, the, the one single uh, thing that has had probably the most effect on my life as a young person and growing up during Vietnam. Um, the, in the 1950s, uh, the years I, were, I was born was the Korean War. Then World War II, and then there was a, a, a couple decades where we actually had no war between World War One, the First World yeah. War, uh, which was 1914 to 1918, and uh, World War II. Uh, but back, if you just want to back up, there were all the Indian Wars, there was the Spanish American War, the Civil War, the Mexican American War, the War of Texas Independence, uh, the Barbary War, the War against the Creek Indians, the War of 1812, and, and they just go on and on and on and. As a nation, we have this myth, um, and you being a dual citizen of Canada, I, you know, I'd like you to speak to this, but I've always said that America has this idea that there, there has to be, it has to be born in blood for us to be free. In other words, we have to kill somebody yeah. for our freedom, but in Canada, they don't have that myth, do they? No. No, it, it, it's amazing how pervasive that is. I mean, if you even think about uh, our national anthem... Like, we're a war tribe. I, I, I don't mind saying that, that America is a war tribe. Even our national anthem, right, is a, is a battle hymn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Versus other national anthems aren't. Sometimes they celebrate the goodness of the people and the land. They look towards the future. But America is, right, this is part of our DNA. And so, yeah, this, the contrast is really profound. I used to joke, you know, because I moved from America up to Saskatchewan. And so, you know, I brought that American mentality, and I used to joke with Canadians that their origin story was um, asking the Queen for their independence and then having to wait an extra hundred years. Like, it was a really passive, <laughs> you know, I used to, like, rib and, right? But now, as I've matured and sort of seen it from a different perspective, you know, it has ramifications. Like, it's a domino effect. But it actually, no pun intended, it bleeds into so many other areas of life. Mm -hmm. It is uh, amazing that the, the war tribe, because the myth of redemptive violence exactly. actually influences not just how we, like, say, read our sacred scriptures, but it actually uh, dictates, like, how we vote or the questions we ask our politicians and the decisions we make, our budgets, right, which, you know, some people think are moral documents, 
Right. Well, it, it just dictates so much of us. Well, a budget is a moral document. But <laughs> what you spend your money on and what you don't spend your money on has to do with uh, moral decision making. So, but the myth of redemptive violence, there might be people who have, that's the, this is the first time they've ever encountered that phrase. You want to explain that just a little bit? Oh, yeah. It comes across uh, often uh, in Christianity and theology when we talk about the atonement, right? Uh, and, and is that the the uh, the context in which you were thinking, or what were you thinking about? I just finished, you know, at uh, at our church. We just read through the Gospel of Mark, and so we just came to the end. Jesus dies an unjust death, even God forsaken. Right, my my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies um, this awful death uh, as a, a political subversive. And uh, he's humiliated and scapegoated. But, you know, the Christian story is some good came out of that. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that gets talked about is, you know, the, the exchange of one life for the many. So the suffering of one for the good of the many. And, you know, I really, this bothers me at a deep level because I really think that even if that was the initial story that it could have ended there that the the one exposed the flaws in the system right and unmasked the powers that be so that no one else had to be scapegoated and slaughtered right that could have been the reading of that but it wasn't that became a model mm. for um marginalized communities for oppressed peoples for those without power or with fewer weapons or whatever it is, you know, um, for women throughout the centuries where this was held up as a model, you know, Jesus suffered for the good of humanity. And if you want to be like Jesus, right? So just put up with this, right? It's the suffering of the one for the many. And it became actually a model. So instead of it, instead of Jesus, when he proclaimed, it is finished, exposing and undermining, what's the word, um, subverting that whole mentality and system, it actually became a model that has been replicated over and over and over and over again at nauseam mm -hmm. throughout history. And it actually is so prevalent now that it's just kind of built into pretty much the way we think about nearly everything. Right. So so even in a non-religious context, you hear people uh, saying, hey, without the shedding of blood, there's no you know, forgiveness of sin. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, Vine Deloria Jr. wrote a book uh, way back in the 60s called uh, Custer Died for Your Sins. And, uh, Whoa. And so, in a, in a sense, Custer died for the sins of those who were... Um, uh, involved in the whole uh, uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide, the uh, idea that, uh, hey, if we will accept Custer's sacrifice, you know, we could be forgiven. But, of course, uh, people didn't. Yeah. yeah. So, you know what it reminds me of is, you know the mentality, there's a saying that uh, you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs, mm -hmm. right? It's just kind yeah. of collateral damage. Yeah. yeah. But just add blood to it. Yeah. And then supersize it. And make it across peoples, nations, even global conflicts. Mm -hmm. Like, it really does 
colors so much of both how we conceptualize kind of conflict, but also how we prescribe how other people should participate in it. Like, yes, in the short term, this is bad, but something good will come out of this. Yeah. Our, our Hollywood movies are, are saturated in this myth of redemptive violence. What I do in the short term may be bad, but in the larger picture, something good's going to come out of it. Yeah, it really is pervasive. Yeah, that's that's the American part of that American myth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, there was a, um, uh, a a sense among our indigenous people that uh, peacemaking was more important than war. Huh. Now it's hard to read the novels and see the movies and understand that because. Um, there's, there was a, um, a attack, a, a publicity attack, if you will, uh, against Native Americans. And so they had to become bloodthirsty savages in order to, ju- and to dehumanize them and justify, um, you know, killing them and, and committing the atrocities that were committed. And um, what I've found is I have listened to many different peoples from many different tribes and done a lot of whole lot of research myself is that um we were all about peacemaking and war was mm. sort of a last result uh, resort mm. and uh, most people don't have that idea about native americans we they don't understand and that's why i did my uh my book on shalom in the community of creation and i talk about and my dissertation was on the native american harmony way because um, that is the pervading, over, overriding value in Native America is to, to be at harmony with our world and with each other. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's fascinating to hear you talk about this. The, if you invested more energy in peacemaking, um, reconciliation, harmony, as you do in gearing up for battle, just... Think of just the sheer, the difference in payoff and consequence if peacemaking was your primary go-to motive and and method Mm -hmm. versus being armed to the teeth Mm -hmm. and mutually assured destruction. Right. So, and, and, you know, everything gets voted down, every safety net. Um, so that the military can be built up, right? Yeah. And so we're experiencing all that right now. Um, it's, it's like if you vote against building the military up, you are seen as unpatriotic. And one other thing that we should address here, too, is that if you talk about anti-war, then you don't support the the people who served in war. And I, I want to dispel that as well. Um, there's lots of people, uh, lots of reasons that people serve in the military yeah. and um uh, and I know lots of folks in the military who are against war. So um so we don't need to equate those together as well. Yeah, the the brave people who serve in our military now um you know that's not in question. American foreign policy, right, is is a different conversation, but when those two get conflated you can't, obviously, you cannot question the loyalty and bravery of those who have sacrificed their lives, who have put themselves on the front line. And so we got to be really careful as we do that. But you know where, where it gets really interesting to me every year is on um, Martin Luther King Day. Hmm. Because Martin Luther King said a lot of things about peace and war. 
Yeah, in fact, he, he started speaking up much more the last year of his life against war, mm-hmm. uh, the war in Vietnam, and some people posit that that's what got him killed. But, you know, when I read those quotes at the beginning and I said, you know, people love to shorten the quotes, well, they love to shorten people's legacies, too, because... Martin Luther King has been shortened to one speech, which is the I have a dream. Mm -hmm. For for most people, that's the only thing they know about him, which is now like in a Buick commercial or something, right? (laughs) Remember that controversy? Anyway, the thing that he said that fascinates me the most is he used to talk about the triplets of evil, of poverty, racism, and militarism. Right. And, you know, it's that militarism not the the brave people who serve in the military, like you said, but what's going on behind the scenes, the machine that drives uh, the industrial complex, yeah. the militarism. But it's amazing to me that um, that part of Martin Luther King's perspective, how easily that gets marginalized in favor of the I Have a Dream speech. And... Every I'm aware of it every Martin Luther King Day when uh, my friends start posting quotes of yeah. MLK on their Facebook walls, yeah. how infrequently any of the triplets of evil are named. Yeah, and uh, I remember I, I spoke at uh, Riverside Church in New York City. Ooh. Now, oh, wait a minute. At the chapel. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was, man, I was, woo. I was, that was impressive. Yeah, no, I, I was, I, I actually was invited to a conference and I spoke at the chapel, which is about as big as some churches, but, um, and, and then I went into the main sanctuary and I, uh, because I wanted to see where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his anti-Vietnam speech. Mm. One year to the date that he was killed, by the way. Yeah. That's probably coincidence. Yeah, probably. Or some people yeah. say, no, that's yeah. not a coincidence. Right. But so, um, yeah, and I, that's all I could think about was, was, you know, him giving that, that speech when I was, I went in there to take a, take a look to see it was, uh, but, um, yeah, you, you just, um, you said something and I'm, this is going to be controversial. Uh-oh. just going to, okay. um, you said our brave men and women who serve, Something happened in the invasion of Iraq. Um, what happened was those crooks who were in charge at the time, uh, who led us all to believe that they're weapons of mass destruction when they weren't. And yeah. They've never been prosecuted for that, by right. the way. That's why I call them crooks. Um, they turned every service person into a hero at right. that time. That was the only way to get enough people to go and do the bidding of... Uh, of uh, Dick Cheney's Halliburton or Bush's friends at Blackwater or any of those Rumsfelds. And yeah, uh, uh, those uh, neocons, um, or some people call them all chicken hawks because none of them ever served. (laughs) They, um, they got our young men and women into that. And one of the things, one of the um, campaigns they did was to call every service person a hero. Right. And so, so the definition of hero changed at that point. Mm-hmm. I have a, a friend who serves in the military right now, and he says, we're not all brave. We're not heroes by any long shot. He said, there's only a few heroes, and usually they die. And he says, some of us sat behind a typewriter or on a computer, uh, and uh, a typewriter that shows my age, right? So uh, he said, some of us <laughs> sat behind a computer, or uh, we work uh, doing, you know, some kind of um, a monotonous detail, 
four, two, three, four years, and that's all we do. He said, to ascribe bravery to that is ridiculous. Those are his words. So um, I, I think what we need to say is it's, number one, a job. Uh, number two, it's a job that uh, could uh, cost you your life, and so in that sense it's brave. But the heroes are those who actually perform heroic things. Yeah, I know. So here's what I'm trying to do. Like, So I'm a registered objector. I don't pay Social Security, and I don't pay... Um, I've used that thing that when you first become an ordained minister, you have, uh, in that first year of paying taxes, you have the ability to opt out of some things. And because we were in war uh, when that was going on, and I didn't want my tax dollars going to bombs, mm-hmm. I opted out. Hmm. Well, I'm a registered objector with the government, okay? Hmm. So, but as I have become a professor and, and a pastor of people who are in the military, mm-hmm. I have listened to them and the struggle and the complicated way that they have to figure out, you know, especially if they signed up out of high school mm-hmm. in order to get maybe college benefits or, you know, to get some training to, to serve their country. And then it has become this other thing. I'm just trying to be really uh, sensitive, but I, I appreciate the pushback on that. You're right. Not everybody I, that phrase being thrown around probably isn't helpful, but I was just trying to well, follow. I, it's, I, I don't in any way wish to um, cast a bad light on uh, people in the military. Yeah. Um, that's not my intention. My intention is to get at the myth that was started that everybody who joins the military is a hero. Yeah. Because what it does is, is it begins to create this idea in young men and young women that, oh, this is how I can be someone, be a hero, is to just join the military. And it's not necessarily, one doesn't equate to the other. It's not necessarily true. So let me show all my cards. Here's the two things that drive me, I mean, make me angry, Mm -hmm. is um, we do not take care of our vets when they come home. That's right. And for, especially for post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and and the way, I mean, that has obviously been all over the news. And it infuriates me that what we've done instead is that we let them get on airplanes first if they're wearing their fatigues or their uniform. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so, that's such bullshit at mm-hmm. one level. First of all, you know, probably uh, grade school teachers should be the first to get on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but it's just, so the whole, that bothers me. But the second thing is this thing that happens at uh, sporting events where they bring home one soldier and do a, a thing where they surprise their spouse mm-hmm. and it's broadcast and tell you know that's paid for by the military that's propaganda yeah and it's so inconsequential to the bigger picture when we're not taking care of our vets so it really that's what irritates me the most yeah. is the spectacle of those um, surprise returns. It's so fabricated and manufactured when we're not caring for those who have served and are suffering the consequences. Yeah. Drives me nuts. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of propaganda. There's the, uh, support of the, uh, video games, um, What's the uh, the one that the military is always uh, advertising? Call of Duty, maybe. Call of Duty, um, but and, and there are movies, right? So Hollywood so and, and uh, Washington D.C. 
have always had this symbiotic relationship when it comes to gearing up for war. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you, you know, I think I think we might have to actually talk about the native stuff at a, at a subsequent broadcast <laughs> because we're we are really talking about some other stuff that is just that has to do with the spirit of America and uh, um, and the propaganda war that's that's gone on. So the they say the first casualty of war is truth, right? Yeah. My wife has a T-shirt. Um, we belong to an organization, by the way. I'll just go ahead and plug them called World Beyond War. Okay. And um, uh, and so uh, we support them because they have a global vision for uh, uh, stopping war in the world, which would make the world a better place, of course. And um, uh, she has a T-shirt by uh, by World Beyond War, and it says, uh, "The first casualty of war is truth; the second is civilians." So we know that to be true, um, and there's this this myth that if um, and it's largely because uh, there's a, a myth of well, it's not that bad, right? Because we only hear about mm-hmm. the, the war of what we call onesies and twosies, or military people refer to it. one person died, two people died, three mm-hmm. people died, and um, but during Vietnam, that war was on TV. We all sat around the news at 6 o'clock every evening, and we watched, really uh, silly, but we watched to see if anyone we knew was there fighting. They because they the names. They, well, not only the names, but they would show live action, and they would oh. interview uh, soldiers, and, and they would you know show those kinds of battle scenes that, that they just don't show today. You would see people being dragged off in stretchers, and it might be someone that you knew. Oh, wow. And so we were all watching, and... Uh, this war was was live. We were a part of it. We were, you know, in a sense, trying uh, uh, as best we could to experience what they were experiencing. And then in the Iraq War, they said, "No, you can't do that. You can't film those. Yeah. You, you can't even film the bodies that come back." Uh, yeah, you to, can't. You uh, cannot show the caskets. Yeah, and uh, and so this is, you know, we we are in a deeply deeply propagandized state right now mm. when it comes to war. And with the person that we have uh, in the White House right now sitting in the Oval Office, anything could happen. Yeah. I mean, who? and I, I suspect that it will happen um, while he's in office. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, maybe some of these terrorists and things that have been started already are, you know, could end up causing wars because everybody's all, most wars are fought over money, right? So um, uh, either to gain more or to uh, to uh, gain favor so that they can gain more. And so there are all those wars. And then there are those, those wars that are, are covert wars that happen as well. Um, who knows what's going on in the world? But right now what I see are patterns that, uh, that aren't good. They don't, they, I don't see a pattern of peacemaking. Mm-hmm. I don't see a pattern of world peace. I don't see a pattern of trying to get along with everyone. Um, you know, the first thing that we could do is to start what I would call a Pentagon for peace. So can you imagine if we spent as much time <laughs> devising it. peace yeah. as we did war? Huh. I mean, can you imagine that it, maybe it would be under the State Department or something like that? Who knows? But, but um, And they would work in conjunction with the Pentagon. Mm. But it would be uh, uh, active peacemaking. What kinds of things could we do uh, that would uh, create the kinds of space that people can resolve their differences without going to war. Mm. And uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? I mean, I have a, a relative, I, I won't say who 
he or she is. Okay. Um, but they, they spent um, a number of years um, devising war games, right, for the United States. Uh, like that, practice exercises? Um, uh, on, um, so strate- strategy, devising oh. strategies to win wars. In this oh. situation, what would you do? In that situation, what would you do? Oh. And, um, and, and this person uh, is a extremely intelligent in strategy making. And so they had the right person. But could you imagine if that person were employed in peacemaking efforts? What kinds of strategies could we come come up with that would save our young men and our young women from being killed in action? Mm. Um, would save uh, the sorts of uh, poverty and and destruction of the earth that war always incurs. Um, so, mm. a Pentagon for peace and and actually, I, I looked that up one time, yeah. and uh, there are uh, people who have uh, uh, introduced that into Congress. Um, I think it was uh, maybe Barbara Boxer or, uh, no, Senator uh, Lee from California. Um, she introduced the idea uh, a number of times, two different times. I think it was uh, uh, maybe five, six, seven years ago, something like that. And, of course, it didn't get any play. But I think we need to bring that idea back, a Pentagon for peace. Let's let's figure out how to live in the world. I think war is outdated, mm. you know, how to live in the world without being barbaric and uh, um, bullying and, you know, exploiting and all those kinds of things. Let's figure out a way to live in the world that, that you know, makes for peace and prosperity. Can I offer up two kind of final thoughts I'd like to hear your reflections on? We just passed the 70-year anniversary of uh, Nagasaki and uh, Hiroshima dr- dropping the bombs. It was interesting to listen to the few remaining survivors from that and for people to go back uh, to Japan and to you know look at those places now and just to to listen to how people are trying to process that and it really emphasized to me the very stark changes in our military after World War II when um, obviously, the recruitment campaign and the draft, you know, when people stepped up and sacrificed across our culture, right, um, for that cause. And how far we have drifted from there to our modern military, which is, you know, not just a standing military, but is, is well-funded, m- more well-funded than any other part of mm-hmm. our civilization. Yeah. And... Just the really, the different mentality of, you know, what Eisenhower famously called the industrial complex, the military industrial complex. And just the fact that whatever lessons we could have learned from uh, World War II and that heroic generation that gets called the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. My, by the way, my father was a World War II, oh. is a World War II veteran. Okay. He'll be 94 this yeah. year. But uh, yeah, he fought in the Navy in World War II. I have a brother who was career Air Force. Um, I, I have uh, other members of my families who fought in different wars. So we, this um, idea of peacemaking is um, uh, not something I grew up with. It was mm. something I grew into. Interesting. Well, I just wanted to encourage people that when you hear stories about military and, 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 and especially now that we're talking about peacemaking, is just to really s- slow down 
and mark the historic drift that we have experienced from our grandparents' generation and how different it works now. Because the thing we can't afford to do is to um, let all of those changes on all of that, mig- the migration, right, to, in, the, in the modern military, to be covered over with a purity myth because of the bravery of that, the World War II generation. Mm-hmm. Right. We really need to be careful that we don't give the military a free pass with what's being presented to us today in the society of spectacle. So you're saying because World War II was fought for perhaps noble reasons, mm-hmm. we, we shouldn't let that shroud over uh, and look like everything that we do now is mm-hmm. for noble reasons? Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to okay. say. Okay. Yeah. Right. What was the second thing? Well, the last thing for me, you know, as a <clears throat> person who's part of the Christian religion, is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Second Corinthians 5 that says, because one died for all, right, that's that redemptive violence. Uh, The implication of that is that it says, God reconciled the entire world to God's self in Christ Mm -hmm. and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So that to me seems to be uh, an unmined possibility of a scriptural precedent and expectation that we have not lived into because we have preferred to live into other narratives and myths and ideas, um, this seems to be a goldmine of uh, an expectation and permission that whatever happened in that Easter story, for us as Christians, so let me just throw this out there. What if only the Christians, not everyone else, because we can't impose that on them, but just people who claim to be Christians, embraced 2 Corinthians 5 and said, God reconciled all things, which includes almost everything, all things, to God's self in Christ. I think it does include everything. (laughs) It's like a totalizing narrative. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What if our heart changed and we became as passionate about peace as anything else on the planet? Yeah. Well, isn't that... I think that's what it said. I've seen another version of that. Um, in fact, I think I, I have it on a bumper sticker in my car. It says, uh, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant don't kill them. Amen. Let's, <laughs> wow. Randy, we, this is going to become a, a two episode. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. have to pick this up again uh, in, a, in a future episode. We had way too much to cover for one episode. I, I didn't realize that we were um, going to cover this much ground. So, listener, thank you uh, for downloading, uh, piecing it all together, for listening in. We would love to get your feedback. Um, we, we understand that this is a, a controversial uh, subject, but we really think that in the world we live in, and probably in the coming years, there is nothing that will impact all of our lives more than this topic. So we didn't want to avoid it, and we wanted to take it on honestly. And we're going to talk about it again, so stay tuned. It's our first name, Piecing. Thank you for tuning in. Let us know on the Facebook page, 
on the Patreon. You can support us there on our website. We would love to hear your reflections. Share this with people who you think might get something out of it, even if they disagree, if it's just a different perspective to start a different conversation. Let's have a conversation. That's where it all begins. Thank you. Peace out.